You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Acts chapter 13. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue, actually finish our series through our marks of maturity. Uh, and we will talk about who we are as a church. If you are a guest today, uh, this actually is a great time for you to be here uh, and to learn about who Covenant Hope is and to see what we are uh, about. And particularly as we finish here our marks of maturity, it's going to end on what the goal of what we do here, and that's to multiply disciples and churches. Now, we normally walk through books of the Bible, uh, but we think it's right for us to take a time to focus uh, on our marks of maturity. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those hard black covered Bibles in the pew back in front of you and turn to page 979 to follow along with us. If you're not a believer today, maybe you are here, as Pastor Ryan said earlier, not by accident, but if you are not a believer, we hope and pray that you see this as a safe place to ask questions and to see what God's people are about. As we start this morning, I want you to think about uh, an illustration. Many of you know that I like to play basketball. Many of you know I've spent lots of time in my life playing basketball. So if I were a betting man and I came to you and I said, I can make 20 shots on the basketball court, five twos, five threes on both sides of the court. If I came to you and said that, what would you think? If I said, well, I'm going to bet 10 cents, 10 cents for each shot. Now, I think I can probably go 16 or 17 from, from, from the field. I think I can do that. So I would, I would really only lose 30 or 40 cents if we, if we bet that. Not too bad, right? Not, not really worried about the money at $2. I spend way more money on my basketball shoes. You can ask my wife than $2. So not worried about that. Now, what if I asked the question, though? What if we said not just adding what if we multiply? What if we, what if we put the stakes a little higher? And we said every time you shoot, it's going to multiply by two. So yes, the first shot is 10. Second shot is 20 cents and then 40 cents and so on. And you think that's probably not too bad, right? You know, maybe, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks here and there. But this is the power of multiplication. At shot number 10, we're wagering $51 and 20 cent. At shot 15, we're wagering $1,638.40. When we get to shot 20, we're wagering $52,000. And on that last shot, if I have missed every shot, we're upwards of $104,000. Do you see the difference in addition versus multiplication? You see the power of multiplication here? Now, let me give you another example. Let's, let's take uh, Disciple Dave, call him Disciple Dave, and he disciples three people every year for 30 years for the rest of his life. He disciples three people, disciples another three people, and so on. So how many people, easy math here, how many people would he have discipled in 30 years? 90, right? Math teachers, don't follow your seats. 90 people. That, that's a good, that, hey, look, if, if, we, if I come up, I die, I go before Jesus and say, look, I disciple 90 people. 
I'm going to feel pretty good about that. But instead, what if we took multiplication and not addition into place and into factor? So instead of me just discipling, those three that were discipled, they disciple three the next year. How many do you think that would be? Well, in 10 years, if every person who was discipled discipled three more people, we would disciple over 59,000 people in 10 years. 10 years. What about 20 years? 3.4 billion people. Half the population of the world. That's how we would disciple the whole planet. Now, in 30 years, disciple Dave's vision, we could disciple the whole universe, 205 trillion people. Do you see the power of multiplication versus addition? This is what we're talking about. When we talk about as a church, we, as a family of believers, will multiply disciples and churches with the mission of the gospel. Multiplication is the answer, not addition. And we'll talk about it. It doesn't matter how, how many people we fill this room up. It doesn't matter. What matters is how are we multiplying disciples and churches for the sake of the name of Jesus? That's, that's what we're giving our lives to. That's what we are focusing on. Over the last four weeks, we've talked about our marks of maturity, that we're going to confess the truth of the gospel individually and collectively. We're going to be transformed. That's the only passive one that we have. We're going to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Last week we talked about we're going to engage our world with the hope of the gospel. That there's hope for repentance and hope that God loves lost people. And today we're going to talk about multiplying disciples and churches with the mission of the gospel. And I think Acts 13 verses 1 through 12 actually articulate this point better than any other passage. So we look at Acts 13, here's what we see. The church at Antioch, under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit, sent out Paul and Barnabas to the nations. Now, if you are a disciple, if you've called on the name of Jesus, particularly if you are a member here at Covenant Hope, what does that truth mean for us? If we want to impact our world, Covenant Hope must join the Great Commission by being a multiplying Church, here's the deal. A mature church is a multiplying church. A mature church is a multiplying church. Now we look here in the the passage itself in Acts 13. Let me remind you, we we walked through the book of Acts in 2020. That was when COVID happened. That seems like 80 years ago. We walked through the book of Acts. Here's what happened. In chapter 8, Persecution broke out because of Stephen's stoning. And they spread. The, the, the apostles stayed, but the ordinary folks, the people that had come to faith, they spread all across the map. And so they go down and they begin to share the gospel. They get to Antioch. They share the gospel. Like, hey, we don't just need to share it with Jews. We need to share it with Gentiles. Praise the Lord. I don't know how many of us in the room were Jews. I am not. Thank the Lord that those people said we're going to share it with the Gentiles in Antioch. And it caused so much of a stir that the church in Jerusalem were like, hold up, we're going to go check this out. We're going to send Barnabas down there, and he's going to tell us if this is true or not. Is God actually working? They get down there, absolutely, he is. So much so that Barnabas is like, i got to go get somebody that I trust to help me preach and teach the gospel. So he goes and gets Saul, who had been converted, and they teach for a year. Well, during that time, 
A famine had broken out in Jerusalem. And so the church at Antioch was like, hey, we need to support our sister church in Jerusalem. So they sent, they took up an offering, a love offering at, at some level, and sent away to Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so now at the end of chapter 12, now coming into chapter 13, we find ourselves now in the church of Antioch. And we get a particular picture of what a multiplying church looks like. So this morning, I want to share with you characteristics of a multiplying church. Characteristics of a multiplying church. Characteristic number one. Multiplying churches look like their community. Look back there at verse one. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, and a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, they make it back to Antioch and Luke now transitions to talk about the church and what it's about to do. Antioch was the capital of Syria under Roman control and it was an important city in terms of trade and commerce. There was a diversity in the people who lived in Antioch. People were coming from all kinds of places with all kinds of backgrounds. They worked, they traveled, they lived there. And so we see this reflected in Luke's description of the prophets and the teachers, right? So the leaders reflect their community. Notice you have Barnabas, who was a Greek-speaking Jew. You have Simeon Niger, who was a black man. You have Lucius, who was from North Africa. And here, something that's, that's interesting, Menean was a Hebrew, but he had ties politically to Herod. And finally... You had Saul, a Jew, as he would describe himself, a Jew of all Jews. The gospel had so infiltrated the many different kinds of backgrounds and places and peoples that there's now been a church that's been shaped and formed by the gospel and unified in the gospel from every background, from all kinds of places. If we want to be a multiplying church, one that reaches our community, then we must look like our community. We must be willing to raise up leaders from our community. The question is in front of us. Do we know who actually lives in our community? You know this. We talk about it all the time. There are so many homes and neighborhoods being built around us. So many people from all across the country moving in here. I've told you just in my neighborhood, a two-year-old neighborhood, Ash and I have lost count. I think it was eight countries represented in our neighborhood seven minutes down the road. This place, some of you grew up here, this place has totally changed in the last 10 years. And there are people from all over the world moving in here around us. Do we know who they are? And are we willing to reach them? Wake Forest in Youngsville is a lot like Antioch. It's made up similarly. There's so many things happening in our area because of Raleigh and Durham. We need to reach people who live here, who have planted their lives here. And I'm reminded as I thought about the passage when we preached it in 2020, the difference here now of the people, the families that Covenant Hope has reached in the last five years. We have begun to reach people who live in the community and who have planted their lives here. And so not only must the leadership look like its community, the membership must look like its community. We must have a church family that reflects the 
the image of our neighborhoods. Multiplying churches intentionally engage their community with the hope of bringing those people into the church family. We must reach people in our community by, by, yes, being welcoming to all backgrounds, ages, and cultures. I see this regularly in you. Often people tell us of how you've been welcoming to them when they walk into this room or up to the front. That this is a welcoming church family. It's important that we welcome all ages. That yes, our children are in here with us. Children, you matter. You are a part of the church now. And you can join God on his mission. No matter who we are or where we come from, we can be united as a church family in the gospel. And we must raise members. We must raise each other up to be leaders in this church and in our community. And we do that formally by our disciple-making pathway. But then we must bring people into leadership. If we want to be a church that reaches community, then we must be committed to raising up leaders from the community that we live in. As ministry has grown here at Covenant Hope over the last five years, we've seen so many of you take the next steps of following Jesus. We've seen you take the steps of of leadership. You've become equipped class teachers, even for our children. You've become missional community leaders. You you lead a ministry or a team. Soon we'll be commissioning new deacons here at Covenant Hope. And in the near future, I pray, calling more pastors Churches that continue to thrive are those that reach their community and then disciple their community to raise them up into leadership of the church. And we must be committed to that. If we want to be a multiplying church, we must look like our community. Now, look at the second characteristic. Multiplying churches devote themselves to worship. Look there at verse 2. Look what the church does. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting first they worshiped right notice the phrase as they were worshiping this tells us that Antioch worshiped regularly worship was a priority they were serious about their worship of God and like the church in Jerusalem in Acts 2 they were devoted to worshiping God the church gathered to worship the Lord as a communal family Don't miss this. This devotion was a communal devotion, not individualistic. Yes, our times of personal prayer and worship of God is important. But this time, right here, is the way in which God is shaping us and actually influencing the world through his church. The communal worship displays that they were united in their desire. It is more than singing, but it's not less than singing. I heard uh, Pastor Stephen at Faith, uh, just down the road, one of our partnering churches, I heard, him, I heard him describe worship this way. Worship describes what we do before God as we seek to place ourselves in a p- position of humility before God. As we acknowledge His glory and we give Him praise. We give Him our allegiance. Right? We talk about when we pray to God, we, we bow our heads Why? Because at some level, we're bowing our hearts before God. We're giving our allegiance to him and nothing else. And so at worship, we praise God. We sing songs. I want to tell you, it's been so encouraging. Week after week, I feel like I'm going to tell you all the time now, I hear you singing when I stand up front. 
I hear you singing songs loudly together. You see, at the end of the day, church, we want the loudest instrument in the room not to be anything on this stage, but to be you when you sing. Because that encourages us in worship. It helps us focus ourselves in worship. And then we must pray to God. That's why every week we've structured our worship gathering around prayer, that we're going to pray. Pray, Praying is not a transition. If you've not noticed, nobody moves during when we pray because it's not a transition. It's important and it's serious and it's focused. But also we preach from God's word. Those leaders that we raise up, they must center themselves on God's word. They lead us from God's word. It shapes us, directs us, defines us. John Piper said preaching is worship-seeking worship. That we worship God through the preaching of God's word and we're asking God to pour his spirit out on us so that we may respond in worship. I want you to know that Pastor Ryan and I, over the years, and now along with the helps of others like Nate, And Paul have structured our worship gathering to reflect a devotion to worship. Because we want you to worship God rightly every week and then take that back to your families, take that back into your household and your community. Not only did they worship, they fasted. Fasting is putting our bodies in a position of dependence to our spiritual lives. We don't don't come to fasting to say, I'm I'm gonna gonna try to lose weight. No, we're coming to fasting because we wanna teach our bodies what's really true and that the spiritual realm is where we are trusting God even more than we trust the food that we put in our bodies. If I'm really honest, that, that one's hard for me. It's hard for me to give up food. I enjoy eating with many of you. But what we say when we give up a meal or, or, or a few meals is to say, God, I depend on you more than I depend on anything else. Fasting reminds us that we need God more than anything in this world. So I have to ask us a question. How do we devote ourselves to worship like this? Let me ask you, did you prepare for worship today? Do you prepare regularly? At the start of the year, we, we added this preparatory song where we, you're just sitting and, and we're singing together. Nothing fancy. We're just going to sing and try to get our minds right. That, that's on purpose so that we prepare to worship God. But how do you prepare before that? Because listen, I understand. You got kids and they're fighting you. It's like on Sunday mornings. It's like, They're excited or something because everything that could go wrong goes wrong and you're trying to get them in the van and not yell at them and you're just trying to get here on time. We understand. But how are you preparing to worship? How do you prepare your minds? Do you read the passage before? Every week we send it in our our weekly email. Hey, here's going to be the sermon passage. Do you read the passage beforehand? We send the songs to you in that same email. Do you, do, you, do you listen to the songs? Prepare yourself to sing those songs corporately. Be early. As hard as it is when you've got the kids screaming and falling all over you and it's hard to get them into our, our, our child care. I, I know it's hard, but be early so that you can engage and ready your heart and calm your soul to worship God. To get the focus off of yourself. A mature church is a church that devotes itself to worship of God. 
It's a multiplying church. Now, characteristic number three. Multiplying churches expect the Holy Spirit to work. Look there at verse 2. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, during the, the worship of God, the Holy Spirit shows up. Do you expect God to show up in our worship gathering? Do you expect God to be here? Or is this just something else we just check the box off? It's just emotion that we go through. The book of Acts is the story of God, the Holy Spirit, working in and through his people powerfully to spread the gospel all over the world. If we think we can do anything apart from the Holy Spirit, we are desperately fooling ourselves. What do you expect each week when you come here? To be motivated? To hear something nice? Church, my prayer for you is that through the body of Christ and the word of God, that the Holy Spirit would work in your life. That we'd both see that collectively and individually. That we would see God's spirit be poured out on us. That's how revival starts. It starts with with us in this place longing for God. Preparing ourselves to worship. Trusting the spirit's work. Now, what what is the evidence of the Holy Spirit working? I don't want this to be this supernatural mumbo-jumbo. That's not what I'm talking about. What what are the evidence of of the Spirit working? Well, first and foremost, it's conviction. It's us being convicted by our sin in worship. Secondly, it's repentance of that sin. And not just repentance, but public repentance. Repentance. That we would fall before our face, before God, and before everybody else and confess our sin before God. That we would repent and turn away from that. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit has shown up. Third is reconciliation, both between God and man. That when the Holy Spirit shows up, that we, yes, are reconciled, but we're also reconciled to God in a way that we now have a relationship with him. Multiplying churches expect the Holy Spirit to work. And lastly, and we're going to get to it here in a second. Fourth, the Holy Spirit sets people apart for ministry. It's the only command in the book of Acts, by the way. Sets people apart for ministry, the Holy Spirit does. Now, let me be really transparent with you. Let me bear my heart with you. I care deeply about our church. I care deeply about you. I care deeply about the Great Commission. But we cannot get ahead of the Holy Spirit's work in multiplying churches. We can't do that. In five years, I've already done that. I've already made it difficult. I've already caused pain and heartache for folks because I've got the mission ahead of the people. So we cannot work ahead of the Holy Spirit. We have to ask him to work in our lives and work to multiply churches and disciples, not for ourselves, but for the sake of God. We must trust the Lord and trust his timing And then be willing to go when we are sent. If we want to be a multiplying church, we must expect the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Fourthly, the fourth characteristic, multiplying churches send their best. Look there at verse 3. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid uh, laid hands on them, they sent them off. Verse 3 gives us a look at how Antioch responded to the Holy Spirit's command. Let me be clear, the Holy Spirit, God, is not a trump card or a license for you to do what you think is best. 
You don't just get to lay that down and say, this is what God told me. That's not what's happening here. Acts 13 tells us of the church worshiping, the Spirit showing up, and then them confirming what the Holy Spirit was saying to them by how they confirmed the work. They fasted again. I don't know about you, but I know in our time here, we've, we've called the church one time to fast. But they fasted again because they wanted to align their hearts with God. Then they prayed. They wanted to, to get God's guidance and make sure that they are on the right path, that they trust God. What was their response? Though? Once they had fasted, once they had prayed, look there, what was their response to the Spirit's work? They sent out Barnabas and Saul. They commissioned them. They laid their hands on them. What, what they mean is that they prayed for God's presence over Barnabas and Saul. They, they pray, prayed for God's blessing and God's empowerment as they were sent out. In human terms, the church at Antioch sent Saul and Barnabas. And in theological terms, the Holy Spirit set them apart. This was a both and. We should not try to level one up. The Holy Spirit called, set apart, the church obeyed and sent out those people. But I have to ask, would we be willing to send out Paul? Let's say, let's say somebody, it's not me, but if we had somebody like Paul here, who, would we be willing to send them out? He was an extremely gifted teacher. It probably hurt the church that he was being sent out. But Antioch didn't hold on to him. There is no one here at Covenant Hope that we should hold on to. Even Nate. As, as terrible as that would be for all of us if Nate left, we, we, we can't hold on to Nate. If the Lord sends him, then we need to obey the Lord. When I was at Open Door, uh, the church had called uh, the Pillar Network and asked, hey, can we, can we talk about some sort of partnership to see the church uh, revived here at this location. And Pastor Wayne, he told me about it. He asked me, hey, would you be, would you be willing to, to look and, and go into this situation? And, I, and, we, and my wife and I said, sure. And as we had conversations, he, he told me this phrase, and I'll never forget it. The, the heart here of, of Pastor Wayne from Open Door has shaped my own heart. He said, you can ask anybody at Open Door that you want to go with you. Anybody. And I said, anybody? Pastor Mark, if you can convince him. And he said, well, you, there's only one person you can't ask. You can't ask my wife. <laughs> and I said, okay, I won't do that. And so that heart there of saying, you can have anybody you want. Anybody. Pastor Dwayne cared more about this situation that a church would thrive here, that we would be a discipling church. He said, you can have anybody you want. That's the heart. That's the heart that our church needs to have. That's the heart that I want you to have. Church, listen. This is a quote by David Platt. We must not measure our church's capacity, measure our church on its seating capacity, but rather on its sending capacity. Not seating, but sending. Not that we can fill this room up and have multiple services and do all that stuff. No, that's not the point. How many people can we raise up and send away for the cause of Christ? Churches, 
missionaries, raise up future leaders. It's the prayer of, of your pastors that you will be sent to multiply churches in North Carolina, in our country, and around the world. That's why we partner with the Church Planting Network, because we want to see churches planted. And we have not yet sent our own church, but we plan to, and we are praying towards that end. And our prayer is that you will consider to go. That you will be sent on mission to start another church. If we want to be a multiplying church, then we must be committed to sending our best. Now, number five, the fifth characteristic of a multiplying church. Multiplying churches preach the gospel boldly. Look there at verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Luke once again confirms what the Spirit is doing. They went down to Cilicia at 16 miles away. And from, the, from there, they sailed to Cyprus and arriving at Salamis. That's 62 miles away. They've now traveled uh, miles away. They proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. So that was their first priority. They go to the Jews, they preach it. They also had John as their son. Now that's John Mark who wrote the second gospel account. Verse six, when they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos. So they traveled with intentionality. We're gonna travel and we're gonna preach the gospel. We're gonna reach every area, every inch of this place with the gospel. They came across a sorcerer a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul, that's Sergius Paulus, and wanted to hear the word of God. But Alamus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As Saul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel, they come across this Jewish musician it seems that he sought to persuade and control people, to deceive people from the truth with his, with his rhetoric and potentially demonic activity. Now, of course, Luke tells us that this was false and it's not real. It's not divine. But this magician had a particular relationship. He served at the pleasure of the proconsul. He was in charge of the region, the city. And the, but here, what, notice what Luke does. He says this proconsul was intrigued interested by the gospel. So they preach the gospel. They, don't, they haven't even preached it to the proconsul yet, but he's now heard their message because they preach it boldly. It spreads. Now he hears about it and he wants to talk to them. But I want to point your attention to a few things. Barnabas and Saul preached the gospel to as many people as possible. The gospel spreads all over the area to both Jews and to Greeks. The gospel is for everyone. We don't get to decide who it's for. Barnabas and Saul were doing the exact same thing they had been doing in Antioch. Notice that. They, what they did in Antioch, they now did here in this new place. Multiplying churches preach the gospel boldly wherever they are. The church does a missionary work. Right? We actively seek to win people to Jesus. And if we ever forget that that is our goal, may we shut our doors. The goal is to win people to Jesus Christ. Do you seek to have gospel conversations? Do you seek to openly talk to people about Jesus, to share your story, to talk about what Jesus has done in your life? And church, know that you're going to face opposition. 
You're going to face opposition. It's going to be rejection sometimes. It's going to be outright persecution. We live in a, in a place for now that we don't have to endure some of those hardships. Praise God. But you will still face opposition. Someone may say things about you. And I must ask a question, though, too. If you have a desire for missions to go across the world to share the gospel, if you won't share the gospel here, then why would we think you would share the gospel there? Multiplying churches develop people with both a desire for the nations and a boldness to preach the gospel to anyone, anytime. I don't tell you that to guilt you. I don't want you to ask questions of your own motivations so that we would train people who so love Jesus and so love people that we would share the gospel in every aspect of Wake Forest and Youngsville. The good places, the bad places, the hard places, the easy places, everywhere. In the schools, the workplaces, the restaurants, everywhere. That in 30 years, we could have discipled the whole planet thousands of times over. Church, just think about if all of us discipled three people that discipled three people for years, we would disciple the whole world because we're preaching the gospel boldly. It is that gospel, the word of God, that is the substance of the message. And it reminds us that the gospel must be at the core of everything that we do. We preach it boldly to a dying world and we preach it boldly to ourselves. It's not just for out there, it's for in here. That we remind ourselves of the gospel. That Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He died in our place, was buried, but then was raised three days later. We must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. That we remind ourselves of who we are, that, that we are so, so sinful. Way more sinful than we ever thought we could be, but also so loved more than we ever thought could happen. This is why we focus our worship gathering here on the gospel and on the word of God. That it focuses us on Jesus Christ. If we want to be a multiplying church, we must preach the gospel boldly. Number six, though, and it, it's really the only characteristic that you can find here in these last few verses. Number six, multiplying churches trust in God's victory. Trust in God's victory. Look there at verse nine. But Saul also called Paul. Now, those of you that have heard that Saul got a new name because he became a Christian, not true. Paul is his Roman name, just to clear that up for you. Uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just stop right there for a moment. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to his disciples after the resurrection. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But you have to wait on something. You've got to wait on the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit do in, at Pentecost in chapter 2? The Holy Spirit pours himself out on God's people, and they now are witnesses to the world about who Jesus is. This is the Spirit that fills Paul. This is the Spirit that set him apart. This is the Spirit that put him to work. He is empowered by God. And now look there in verse 9, like an old-fashioned Western. Paul stands up, stared straight at Elymas, Verse 10, and said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. What a phrase. I mean, have you ever heard anybody say that to anybody? I mean, my goodness. I mean, Paul just tells him the truth. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, 
The Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When Paul confronts Bar-Jesus, it is a visible demonstration of good versus evil. The gospel confronts the wickedness of this world. The confrontation ends in a miracle. It ends in a miracle, but this miracle is punitive. It's not restorative. Most miracles in the New Testament are restorative. This one's punitive. Here's what I mean by that. It was a punishment for Bar-Jesus for deceiving people and preventing the word of God to take root. Notice why Paul does this. Paul doesn't perform a miracle to garner more attention. He doesn't do it to build his platform and to reach more people. That's not why he did it. He does it so the gospel can spread without opposition. The gospel's power to change people's lives, both for now and for eternity, is confirmed by the power of this miracle. Their message is authenticated by the miracle. Why do I say that? Because God was working the whole time. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. God is working the whole time. And I don't want you to miss the focus here on this miracle. This sorcerer was deceiving people. He's trying to pull, he's trying to not let people see the truth. And then Paul comes and says, you know what? I'm going to physically blind you. And I'm going to help other people spiritually see. Why? Why does God do that? Well, why, why does Paul do that? So that the victory can be clearly seen that it's God's and nobody else's. Look at verse 12. Then he saw, who's he? The proconsul. He saw what happened. And when he saw, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The power of God through the Holy Spirit and in Paul demonstrates God's ability to have victory over any kind of opposition. Anything that you face, God has the victory. Gospel multiplication stands at odds and will forever win because of the God who has sent his son into the world. Multiplying churches don't trust in their own power. We don't trust in our own power. We don't trust in our programs, our people. We trust in God. We trust in his victory in Christ. Victory has been won by Jesus Christ and multiplying churches trust God's victory. We have seen what kind of church we want to be. We've seen what kind of church we're, we're being called to be. What kind of church will need to be for the sake of the Great Commission? The question still remains, how do you, how do you participate as an individual and in your family? How do you participate in our multiplying church? Three quick things. It's not everything. It's not everything that can be said, but three quick things that I want you to know. Number one, pray about why you should stay and not why you should go. Pray why you should stay and not why you should go. As opportunities come up over the next few years, and we talk about planting churches and sending people and missions, pray not that, hey God, why should I go with that? No, you should pray, why should I stay? I have many people in my life that, that has shared this kind of prayer. Why should you stay? Not why should you go? 
Secondly, purposely invest in relationships here. That's the informal part of disciple making. Grow long, lasting relationships here and help people grow in Jesus. Get your families connected to other families so that you can grow together in the gospel. That you can sharpen one another. You should pray. You should, be, you should purposely invest. But lastly, pursue multiplication by participating in our disciple-making pathway. That's the formal sense. That that's, what, that's what we do as a church. That we're, what we're saying here is this is how we make mature disciples. It's not the only way, it's not the only parts that happen, but it is the formal way in which we're going to do this. We're going to worship together weekly. We're going to join together in missional communities to, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to our neighbors. We're going, to, we're going to be in discipleship groups of men or women. We're going to grow. We're going to get together and live life together and let the gospel bear itself out. And then finally, we're going to serve and we're going to send. There is both an informal and a formal way in which we, that you participate in a multiplying church. Our aim is to multiply. Our aim is to sin. And so if we never had a structure to do that, then we're just, we're just like the sorcerer who's blind. We're just walking around not knowing where we're going. When our church replanted, Good Hope Baptist Church was 200 years old. 208 to be exact. The vision is not what we can do in five. The vision is not what we can do in 10. The vision is what can we do in 200 years if Jesus doesn't come back? How many disciples can we make? How many churches can we plant? How many missionaries can we send? How many pastors can we raise up? That's the question at the heart of do we want to be a multiplying church? And we must not get ahead of God and what he's doing. And we must be committed to these just ordinary steps, to praying, to investing, and just being a part of the life of the church so that we see the gospel spread all across the world to people who have never heard about it. Why do we do that? Because God sent his own son, his very best for you and me. He didn't hold back anything, but sent Jesus into the world, into our mess, into our muddiness, and Jesus gave his life for us. Our God is a sending God, and we've now been called into working with him on that mission. Will you take the next step? Will you pursue the gospel by just trusting the Lord here as a church family? Would you pray with me? God, would you help us be a multiplying church? This is not something new or innovative. This is just what your church has been doing for centuries. It's not different from our partners down the street or our partners across the world. It's the same. Would you help all of us be multiplying churches? Would you help us disciple one another, both informally, but also formally, whether it's through equipped classes or missional communities or D groups? Would you help us disciple one another so that there may be new disciples raised up 
three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, that we will see a pattern, a legacy of a church that gave everything it had to making mature disciples. God, we need your help. As it's clear here in Acts 13, we cannot get ahead of you. And I pray that you would work, and I pray now that you would raise up people to be sent out that we would hate to lose, but we would love to send. Would you work now in their lives and raise them up to do what you have called all of us to do, which is to be on mission. God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.